Hello and welcome to the Prospect Sermons podcast, the preaching ministry of Prospect Baptist Church. This podcast is dedicated to the faithful exposition of the scripture and the edification of the local church. This is Parker Smith, Senior Pastor of Prospect Baptist, located in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the sermon you are about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you toward the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. Amen. Thank you so much, Scott and choir and Kim for leading us in worship. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn them on or turn them to the book of Galatians chapter number five. Uh, We're going to be looking at a few verses this morning. Uh, We do something here. If you're new to us at Prospect, we do what's called expository preaching. We work our way slowly through books of the Bible. And so this morning we find our way, not by accident, uh, to Galatians chapter number five, verses 19 through 21, and uh, many of you may be taking wagers of how long this jacket is going to stay on, and um, you know how to get sweaty, and uh, so if I make it through the first point with it still on, we're in good shape, but it's probably come off during point number one, but um, we've been building, uh, working through the book of Galatians. Paul has been unpacking this notion of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. He uses this language that they are warring against one another, the spirit warring against the flesh, the flesh warring against the spirit. And so it is, uh, he writes to the churches at Galatia, so it is in their churches as well. We could say it this way, problems in many churches have many faces and many facets, but with all of them, without exception, the root of their problem by and large has to do with someone's lack of submission to the spirit and walking instead in the ways of the flesh rather than seeing the flesh being put to death. No matter how noble you think you are, noble of a cause you think it may be, following your flesh will mean reaping and sowing the things of your flesh and it will lead to destruction, beloved. So it will be if we walk in the flesh and not by the spirit. Paul warns that there is a great danger in pursuing the things of the flesh and implores the churches of Galatia to walk by the spirit instead. And he says to them, which will it be, walking by the flesh or walking in accordance to the spirit? And so I ask by way of that, what will it be for us, prospect? Will we walk in the way of the spirit or will we walk according to the way of the flesh? And what I'm going to do this morning is you're going to hear a lot of law. You're going to hear what may seem like I'm beating you down by merely showing to you the works of the flesh. All I'm doing is following the contours of the text. And hopefully, as I always try to do, is build you back up in Christ. And so if you feel like you're being torn down a little bit, just hang on with me and we'll point you to a greater hope this morning. But if you would, out of the honor and reverence of the reading of God's word, if you would stand as we read Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 21. Paul says this, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. 
Father, that you would go before us in this text and that as we look through your law, as we look through your word, Father, it would reveal to us our need for your son. It would reveal to us our need of a savior. And above all things, that we would not merely see a list of do's and don'ts, but we would see your son high and exalted, lifted up. For you say, if you... The son of man is lifted up. He will draw all men to himself. And so may Jesus go before us in this text and may he make a way for he is the way, the truth and the life and no one will come to the father except through him. And so we pray that Jesus would be exalted and that by your spirit that you would help us to receive your word, to hear it and believe it in faith, but also to apply it in our own lives. And we thank you for it in advance. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to call your attention to just two things this morning. The first one is this, is that this idea is that the Christian life is very clear. The works of the flesh are crystal clear. Point number one is that crystal clear are the works of evil or crystal clear evil. You see this in verses 19 through 21, really the first part of 21, and I will break, make a break between 21a and the rest of the verse, and I'll show you that in just a moment. But Paul is continuing contextually from the passages that we looked at, namely last week, that if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. You are not living in the bondage of the law or according to the flesh. You are not under the condemnation of the flesh. And he begins in this word in the original Greek, evident now, First word in that is the word evident now are the works of the flesh. The word that he uses here for evident is a word that means that they are clearly revealed. Phanaros is the word. It's apparent. They're manifest. They're clear. They're known. They are well known. And note he calls them the works of the flesh. In contrast to what he will say of the fruit of the spirit. It's worth noting that the flesh can only produce works. You can work your fingers to the bones and nothing will come of it will ever produce anything that brings lasting fruit. Only fruit can be bore from something that is alive. Yet over and over and over again, Paul communicates the deadness of your sin and the deadness and futility of living within your flesh. Living in the flesh may be satisfying for you in the moment, but nothing good will come of it as accomplishment. Nothing lasting will come of it. No fruit will be bore in the flesh. Only works. And only a work that will want you to work more and more and more and if you continue to live in the flesh, you will not find life. You will only find deadness. Nearly all of the work of the flesh are mentioned in the plural. By contrast, the fruit in the spirit is mentioned in the singular. Works being plural in the flesh, but the fruit is singular of the spirit. Notice the listing that you'll see the contrast after verse 21. The works of the flesh is very chaotic. It's very unstructured. It's very unending, so to speak. Yet the work of the spirit is very ordered and very rhythmic in the way that it comes about. And what lays before us this morning is a 15 plus vice list, if you will, of the works of the flesh. And while there was certainly some chaos to this list, Paul does, I believe, put them in some helpful categories that we'll look at. So we'll read them all this morning, we'll discuss them, and we'll apply them accordingly. 
Note that many of you may be using a different translation of the Bible, maybe in a New American Standard or a King James Version. They might see some textual variants that are there. I'm not going to get into a sermon on textual criticism, but nonetheless, some of them are borrowing from older, older or more recent scribal translations, yet they are all implied, and across all the translation, it is by and large the same list that we see. And he says, now, evident are the works of the flesh, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. See, the first category that the Apostle Paul mentions is the category of sexual sin. There's three things that are mentioned here, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The first sexual morality is the word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. We live in a very sexualized culture today in which sex sells. Beloved, I just want to remind you, while sex may sell, it will condemn you in the end. There's nothing significant to this that Paul is borrowing, quite significant to this. Paul is borrowing this idea of sexuality in nature. That is not that it's more heinous than all the other sins. All sins are grievous, but This sin, sexual morality, along with all sin, come from a heart that has been corrupted. It's a heart that is defiled. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, or what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of a heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these things things of evil come from within, they are what defile a person. And yet while that is true, there is certainly something that is more apparent in sexual sin, namely that is it affecting the person, the hearts and emotions, the feelings of a person in a particular way like no other sin will. This is why the apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth in chapter six, he says, flee from sexual morality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The term pornea that's used here carried with it contextually the idea of prostitution, It was the idea of being involved with, involved in the sale of humans as a means of sexual pleasure. By contrast or context today, it would even mean that which is something being done behind the screen to that end as well. More broadly, the term would be used for any type of sexual morality. Things like fornication in the King James Bible, unlawful sexual intercourse, including adultery or incest. This is exactly what was going on at the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul tells the church not to associate with anyone who is partaking in such acts. Instead, remove them from among you. There was nothing sexually appropriate about what was going on there. There was nothing fitting about it. It was without morality. It is immoral. It is unloving. It is ungodly. Despite the distortions that our world would try to teach us and groom us today, it is evil. 
Flee from them, Paul says. Resist them. Secondly, impurity. Paul uses a word here that literally means uncleanness or impurity or filth, not to even associate with indulging in a sexual immoral practice. The word would have come with a medical uncleanness, a moral uncleanness, a ceremonial uncleanness, namely that you have been defiled and corrupted by the sin that you are committing. Paul has a common use that he's linking sexual morality and impurity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, he says, but sexual morality and all impurities linking them together or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. From an adulterous affair to soliciting a prostitute to dabbling in pornography, all of them bring a sense of defilement and a consciousness into our mind, a lack of consciousness of shame and guilt and the weight of gravity that's there, this idea of filth in our minds and in our body. And while we're not to the good news yet, let me just say here this morning to anyone that is dabbling in any of those things, your healing will begin with you coming clean and you coming clear. By confessing and bringing that which is done in the darkness and in your private life to light. This is why John would say, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And beloved, I just wanna encourage you this morning, the freedom that you're looking for will not often happen. It will not happen apart from you coming clean and coming clear with the sin that is affecting your heart and your life. And it's worth mentioning, it's worth saying out loud that 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 which what you wish could keep hidden would surface and come to light so that God could bring about healing. Pornography, impurity, sensuality. The word here is literally debauchery. Some of your translations may say it contextually means a lack of sexual restraint. It's unbridled sexual passions. You think that every nod is an invitation. You interpret every casual wave as flirtatious. William Barclay said that this way of this particular vice, it is a love of sin that is so reckless and so audacious that a man ceases to care what God thinks any longer and is only concerned about his course of action. You're more concerned about satisfying your own cravings and fulfilling your own desires at all costs that you desert following the Lord. This is where sexual sin leads. It's a distortion of the mind. It grows, it feeds, it manifests itself until it's something that is out of control that instead controls you. It desires to secretly lead you away down a path of isolation to destroy you and consume you and to kill you. Sin will consume you and kill you just as it did to the people of Israel in Jeremiah 6 that they didn't even blush at the abominations that they were committing before the Lord. They were content, they were happy, they were unashamed. No doubt, this is the culture that we live in today that celebrates now sexual immorality, that sees no problems and celebrates with sexual surgeries to reverse gender. The pride that's pursued of a, in a lifestyle of LGBTQ, it's, it's in the promotion, folks. Pride. 
The writing's all over it, even in the language to a degree, that identity is now wrapped up in this conversation. I identify as fill in the blank. No shame, just pride about their sin and before the Lord. And the desensitization of the same of all sexual morality, that it will continue to grow and spread and consumed. Sir, may I ask you this morning, has sexual morality consumed you? Ma'am, may I ask you this morning, has sexual morality consumed you? And you see the sensualness in our culture today, maybe in a more specific and tangible way, even in the way in which we dress from time to time. Sometimes even the way that church members may dress without restraint. The scripture says very plainly that our clothing should reflect holiness and modesty. That's 1 Timothy 2.9. And that even among Christians, there may be a temptation to look good or to look sexy. Folks, that's not from the spirit. That is from the flesh, walking to manifest itself, wanting to flaunt and manifest to look sexy. It's showing without restraint. Parents, let me encourage you. Teach your children these things now. Teach them these things early or to continue to grow. The first category is sexual sin. The second one is idolatrous sin. Sins that affect the heart of the worshiper, that affect the heart of the hearer, that lead them away from the true God and to, to show their devotion and allegiance to a false God. The first one is this, is idolatry. The second one is sorcery. The word for idolatry literally means to, to give our hearts to worship. It means to give our hearts to something other than the Lord. Worship is reserved for God alone. Yet this worship is given over to a false God. And more often than not, contextually, it's usually given over to the idol of sex that's mentioned previously in these verses. Paul writes to the church at Rome that they claimed to be wise, yet they became fools and they exchanged the image of the glory of God for visible things. And therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, the lust of their impurities, God says, if, if you want your idol so much, you can have it. It's a scary place of the judgment of God giving you the desires and idolatrous desires of your heart. Idolatry is giving your heart's devotion over to anything other than the Lord, to worship, to put something up to the degree that it pulls the heart of your affection to worship or to be satisfied by them from sports teams and man, how we, our passions can get enraged when our team wins or loses, to politics, to this party or that party, to gadgets, to do all things in the name of health, preserve our bodies at all costs, to your stuff, to your money, to your fame, the list goes on. Even your pride is idolatrous, that you're more concerned with self than the glory of God. Anything that keeps you from giving thanks to the Lord is idolatry. He continues and says sorcery as well. The word pharmakia, the word magic that is used. It, it is literally to deny the power and the sovereignty of the Lord. And instead of trusting the Lord, 
You put your sense of control or power into something else, something of magic or divine arts or black magic to control your life. And it is a direct affront to the sovereignty and sufficiency of Christ. It is leading your devotion away, deceiving you to put your devotion in something other than the Lord and towards those who namely possess magic or sorcery of the arts. The word that's used here for sorcery is the word pharmakia. It's where we get our term pharmacy from. It's, it's literally the distribution of drugs, specifically illicit drugs intended to control someone by the substance therein. Contextually, it's directly linked with the occult and the magic arts that was used for a hypnotic effect to put someone under demonic control would be the contextual understanding of this word. And eventually, these same drugs were often used even to facilitate abortions in the New Testament. Folks, we are not to live under the deception of any foreign power or mysticism, but instead to trust the Lord and wholly trust the Lord who is sovereign in all things. We'll bring it a step closer. We live in a day, just turn on the TV, we are filled with commercials that we have a pill that can fix just about anything. Filled with, this, take this pill for this and take this pill for that. You're depressed, you're angry, you're anxious, you're fearful. Well, we've got a solution for you. We've got a pill that you can take. And if we're not careful, we would be quick to call what Jesus said is sin as just merely a disease that needs to be treated. Folks, hear me. Medicine is not evil. It is needed sometimes and it is good and it is certainly helpful. But when the flashback comes, will you jump and find your satisfaction in a substance or a pill or will you find comfort in Christ? And what I'm not saying, let me be very clear, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't take any medication. I'm not saying that at all. It can be needed and helpful. And I'm no medical doctor, but I would just say this as, 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 as a pastor, be careful that you don't just medicate a spiritual issue to suppress it that you deal with it according to the spirit of Christ. Pharmakia, being controlled by something other than the spirit of the Lord. Thirdly, not just sexual sin, not just idolatrous sin, but social sin. This is the vast majority of the sins that are mentioned within this text. It is interesting that sin will spread and will grow and it will affect your relationship with other believers. In this list is enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. He says enmity. Ekthra is the word. Enmity, discord, feud. It's hatred for another. It's the opposite of the command of loving others. Hostility towards them instead. We ought to be very careful when we say things. I don't like people. I don't like him or her. Folks, that type of language can destroy the church and can destroy and tear down the community of faith. And Paul knows that. He continues with the word strife, eros. It means to altercation or strife or some of your translations say discord. Beloved, if there is one sin that can destroy a church, it's this one. Stirring the pot, being a gossip, starting the rumor mill. Right, let me get a prayer request not to pray for, but to talk about. 
Let me, let me put it on social media in case people need to know about it. A critical spirit causing strife, showing up just to ensue drama, just to draw people away to win friends and cause division within the church. And this spirit of division within a person can be a very destructive thing. And how often do you find yourself even at odds with another person? How often do you find yourself being at odds with your brother and sister in Christ? Yet we should be careful that our flesh is not producing in us a spirit of division or quarrelsomeness within you. And it needs to be addressed, it needs to be confessed and brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. He continues with jealousy. Zealous is the word, generous rivalry. It's a struggle, not merely wishing that we had someone what someone else had, but instead we hold them in contempt for what they have, wishing that we had it. It could be a pastor wishing that his church was as big as the other guys down the road, speaking ill of him because he wished his church were larger. And at its heart, it is a distortion of you think you're more deserving than the next. Your lack of trust in giving all that you have and God giving you all that you need, you instead think, I need, I deserve something more than what I've been given. I deserve what they have. I need that house. I need that car. I need that guy. I need that girl instead of what the Lord has given to me. James writes in James chapter three, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. There is not wisdom, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. I'll tell you the leveling field, folks. What you deserve, beloved, is nothing short of hell. What you deserve is nothing good. It is only by his grace that we receive anything. And when you realize that, you realize how trivial and how foolish you are to think that you deserve something more than your brother or your sister or the next person. And how instead we ought to walk in grateful and thankful hearts and realize that we are so immensely blessed. That's what it looks like to walk in the spirit and not to the flesh. He continues, fits of anger. Themos in the, in the Greek is swelling of anger, a, a, a wrath that brings about a passionate outburst of rage and hostility, usually directed at one person specifically. We might call it today a temper tantrum that leaves a wake of destruction in its path of people. Folks, if we're not careful, we can be very quick to diminish this and say, well, oh, that's just so-and-so. He's a little rough around the edges. He just gets hot about stuff from time to time. He's really easily frustrated. Maybe you did just fly off the handle, but how quickly can we become angry and anger continues to grow and it consumes us? And you see the flesh totally manifested in itself in anger. How fleshly driven we can be when we are angry. How carnal minded we can be about the things that often enrage us are usually things that really don't matter much. 
And I want to tell you this, an angry person is a foolish person. And an angry person is also a person without self-control and without self-discipline. The Bible warns in Proverbs 22, it says, make no friendships with a man who is given over to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn from his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Anger is a snare, but anger can also be learned. And we need to be very careful that we don't learn to become angry and be led down a path of destruction. And the only way that your anger, that your wrath, that your frustration can be conquered, beloved, is not through your flesh, but it is only through the Spirit, who is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You hear the contrast? Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He continues, rivalries, Erathea. It's a contentious disposition. It's selfish ambition. Literally carries the notion with it, office seeking. It's political campaigning, positioning for a seat at the table contextually in the life of the church. Climbing a ladder of success, climbing the stairs for the reins of control and power, getting it at all costs seeks to honor oneself rather than serving others and living for the Lord. It is selfishly motivated and selfishly driven. Folks, just to be very honest with you, uh, there could be a ploy that, that comes about in any church because of the way that most churches are structured that someone could be positioning for power and control. And I've seen it happen that in any church, nothing stops a group of people getting together wrangling up enough votes, two-thirds votes, to compare notes about their likes and their dislikes about their pastor, start up a phone tree, start up a coup, and start talking and yin-yang about things. And I'm gonna tell you, when that conversation starts, there's another party that joins you, and his name is Satan. And he would love nothing more to fill your mind with doubts and dislikes and things of the flesh and get the two-thirds vote to get him out. Folks, that is positioning for power in the local church. That is exactly what Paul is warning about here. That sin could spread and that sin of control and wanting to see things happen. I've seen churches split, but by and large, they're not because of a doctrinal divide. By and large, it's not because what the pastor preached on Sunday, but it was because somebody got offended and wanted somebody else to be offended with them and wanted somebody else to be offended with them. So they picked up the phone, they got a phone tree, wrote letters, they got a, got a coup, got a ploy of people. They showed up to a, a church vote where not a lot of people show up and they had two-thirds majority and they asked the pastor, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul contextually is warning about here. Put the notion of rivalry and control to death. If your pastor is a man of God, if he's qualified as qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus and in 1 Peter, if he's preaching the truth, if he's feeding the flock, let the, go, let the rest go away in Christian love, beloved. Get behind that person, get behind that man and support him. He continues, dissensions, a standing apart, a fragmentation. 
This is what Paul warns about in Romans 16. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord in Christ, but their own appetites. And by their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In the same way that rivalries, this carries a political overtone as well, splitting parties within a church. It's this exclusiveness, this eliteness that this group matters more than the next. And whenever there's a mindset within a church that carries that disposition and heart, we're in trouble. He continues for divisions. The word there for factions, literally a religious sect. Paul writes to the church in Corinth that I hear that there are divisions among you. And a church that is fragmented, some saying I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. They're fractions, they're factions within the body that is not good. It is a religious sect within the flock. Today it would be like someone holding in contempt to say, well, I'll go to Sunday school because I like my Sunday school class, but I won't be coming to participate in large group worship. I like my Sunday school teacher, but I'm not so sure about the pastor. I like the WOM, I like the direction, but I don't like the direction of the overall church. I'll do my committee thing, but eh, I don't know if I really wanna come or not and really be a part of the fellowship. Folks, your small group, your Sunday school class, God bless them and we love them, but they are not your local church. Your, your Bible study group is not your local church. Our youth group and our love our youth group, but the youth group is not the local church. Our children's ministry, and we love our kids, but the children's ministry in itself is not the local church. And if there are factions, if there are separations and distinctions from among us, it's just a religious sect. Prospect, we together are the body of Christ, the local expression of Christ's body. More broadly speaking, this word would also mean believing anything that is false, heresy, hearsay. I think we should and give an opinion on the matter that is out of step with the word of God. Folks, we ought to be careful about the things in which we speak, lest it be something contrary to the word of God and try to persuade others to our way of thinking. Titus says this, or Paul says to Titus, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. Be careful about which the things that you want to express as your opinion of what the Lord's church should be doing, how we live and how we function, because you think so. Folks, the Lord has spoken in his word. We don't have to think so, we can know so. And we follow his word and we ought to be very careful about the things in which we speak that they not become a root of sin and division within the church and confirm in our own minds that this is the right way instead of what thus says the scripture. He continues, envy, phonos, similar to that of idolatry, but focused on the possessions of another that bring discord within the body. It cannot bear the thought that someone has something that you don't. There's sexual sin, there's idolatrous sin, there's social sin. And the fourth category is sin without restraint, drunkenness and orgies. 
drunkenness. Methe is the word that's there. It's an indulgence in drinking. And certainly wine was associated in the Old Testament with joy and celebration in Nehemiah chapter eight and Psalm 104 and certainly in John 2, 3. But when it is abused, beloved, it becomes highly destructive. And drunkenness is consistently condemned throughout the scripture. It is to be controlled by something other than the spirit of Christ. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 5, don't be filled with wine or drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And there is a slippery slope in flirting with alcohol and dabbling in that. We ought to be very careful that we not be consumed by it be consumed by alcohol or, or paying, being consumed by anything other than the spirit of Christ for it is unfitting for believers. It's sin without restraint. He continues with orgies, the word comos. It, it's a festive progression. It's a merrymaking. It's lewd and moral feasting, reveling, carousing, wild parties, most often in the New Testament linked to the sin of drunkenness as it is here. It's this type of wild, flippant lifestyle of marriage infidelity that God gave you one spouse, but you've assumed to have multiple in your flesh. It is the erosion of the family unit. It is moral chaos in society. This is sin without restraint. And it is the height of living in the flesh, living as you see fit. And Paul says, that's not all. It continues. There's another category. Paul says, if I were to stop here, it would be enough. He's already hit our hearts. He's hit us with something that we struggle with already. But Paul says there's a fifth category as well. And things like it. Sins, plural, just like this. This list, in other words, Paul says, it's not exhaustive. There's a few more that he'll mention in Galatians chapter five of becoming conceited, provoking one another to anger and the danger of spiritual pride. And Paul says in verse 21, these things like them. Paul is essentially saying, I could go on and on and on and on and on. He's speaking with the part, with the whole in mind that these things can begin to draw us towards. And we certainly all struggle with some of these, maybe not one, maybe multiple, but maybe a few of them. But Paul says, we are in a struggle with the flesh. And Paul says, when you're struggling in the flesh, know that you can tell what are the works of the flesh. It's very, very clear. You know what I'm talking about. The works of the flesh are clearly demonstrated. They are clearly seen. And the works of the flesh, if you live in them, this will be your source spring from which your life is drawn. And apart from the spirit, this is the works of your flesh that you will love to gratify. For the spirit is opposed to the things of the flesh and the flesh is opposed to the things of the spirit. And for the redeemed man and for the redeemed woman reading this, it should be a strong reminder of what your life would be like apart from God's grace and his spirit. But secondly, also a starch warning of pretending to live in Christ, yet producing a life that Paul says is in the flesh. And he says, look, you can't pretend because the works of the flesh are evident. They are crystal, crystal clear. What does your life look like? These things or things like these, you're living in the flesh. Evil, as much as you want it to be hidden, is revealed. It is crystal, crystal 
clear. Examine your life, he says. Is this you, Galatians? Point number two, Paul's crystal clear warning and hope. In the last part of verse 21, Paul wasn't just spitting out a list of pet sins. He was addressing a specific or specific congregations. No doubt that Paul, if he were there and he looked around, if he were there, if he were present with them, would have likely have said something like, and oh, by the way, I know that these things are here among you as well. He wrote in Galatians chapter five, verse 15, but if you divide, bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He warned them not to become conceited or be provoking to one another in anger or envying one another. And in the same way, I would be foolish to think that in our midst today, that there is not, not one or two or perhaps maybe even several or maybe even the great majority that are struggling with this type of sin, maybe even privately, maybe trying to keep it hidden, keep it covered. Don't let anyone knows about it. Yet God knows, God sees. And maybe upon you hearing this and hearing the word of God, it is shining a light of the Christ on your heart, exposing your sin and that you can no longer remain hidden that there's a corporate nature to this. Paul says, I know that these sins are here. And Paul says with a word for those that are walking in the things of the flesh, he repeats himself in verse 21, I warned you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a strong warning from the apostle Paul, a very strong warning that those who do such things, that is, the list of sin and things like these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We don't like the notion of exclusivity. We don't like the thought that God would exclude anyone. We live in a day in which God is to be tolerant. He's to tolerate me. He's to tolerate sin. God will just overlook. God would never judge. God made me this way. He would never make mistakes. So the language of not inheritant no, I, I want God to give me what I deserve. And Paul says, he will. There's a coming inheritance, but it's only those who are the offspring of the free woman, Galatians 4.30. And those who live in the flesh, in the end will be condemned by the flesh that they live in. It may be quite shocking, but there's a very real denial expressed within the biblical text about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual moral, nor idolater, nor adulterer, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, verse number five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexual, immoral, or impure, and who is covetousness, or who is covet, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does what is perishable in help what is, inherit what is imperishable. Romans 8, 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is a very real danger 
and a very real reality for those who practice such things, Paul uses two different words here for warned. But it's very apparent in his appeal to tents. Watch this in the text in verse 21. He uses two different words for warn. He says, I warn you, that is right now, and I have warned you in the past. Paul's appeal to tents is very significant. So I saved it for last. I warn you right now, and I warn you in the past, that those who do, presently do, will not inherit a future reality. Those who do, the word for do, proso, it means to do, to execute, to perform, to practice, to carry out. It's an active, present tense, plural verb. It means it has ongoing and continuous action. He says, I'm warning all of you, every one of you, if this is your way of life, that day after day after day that you continue to live and pursue the things of your flesh, if this is present and ongoing, then you will not inherit a future reality of the coming kingdom. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Be warned. Everyone who has ears to hear, be warned. Paul couldn't be any more clear. And so, while the true believer may struggle in the flesh, we war against the flesh. We may even be susceptible in falling into some of these sins in the flesh. We will not win completely the victory over the flesh. But those who have the spirit of Christ, who walk in the spirit of Christ, will not be content living in the works of the flesh. Paul is mentioning the works of the flesh in these verses to show a great sense of horror to the hearer. For the believer to see these things, that they would be in great fear that they would not walk in these ways. But there also to be a great wrestling within the heart of the hearer as well, to examine your own heart and life that in what way are you walking? In what way are you living? To live not in the flesh, in the futility of the flesh, thinking that the flesh can somehow justify us. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, Romans 8, 13. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And as I conclude this morning, I want to appeal to you that those who feel at a loss, maybe if you are truthful with your own way of life, you'd have to say, I've become content living in my flesh. I found myself living, as the Puritans would say, in the muck of the world. I'm living in my flesh constantly. And I will do as I try to do every single sermon as I preach and try to preach with the cross always in view. And so this morning, I appeal to you, sinner, sinner though I am, vile we may be, in utter grace this morning, somehow I can still see the cross from here. And what is crystal clear, a crystal clear picture of sin, maybe even your sin, a crystal clear warning of those who practice such things, those who live in them will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be condemned along with their flesh. Paul has not lost sight of the good news either. 
Paul has not lost sight. And what is crystal clear this morning is that our hope is not in our flesh or in the works of our flesh, but is only in Christ and in Christ alone. And the good news of the gospel this morning is it doesn't matter how far down that road you've traveled. It doesn't matter how filthy or how unworthy you may feel. There is always a road home. And it's the way of Christ. It's repentance and faith in Christ. That God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And man, there's no way, there's no way he could really love me. I mean, did you hear the list? I mean, he pegged me. Gosh, I mean, that little line and things like these. Goodness, who can measure up? I'm as good as condemned. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus measured up for you. And it is only through Christ and only through Christ by believing in him that you can be saved. Paul said in Romans 7, in this battle of the flesh and the spirit, he says, wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Maybe you feel like you're in a body of death this morning. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in the flesh I serve the law of sin. He goes on in Romans 8, he says, there is therefore, because of what Christ has done, there is therefore now no condemnation for Christ Jesus. And maybe you find yourself this morning thinking there is no possible way. Oh, there's a way. And his name is Jesus. And instead of trusting in your flesh and continuing to trust in your flesh, Paul invites us by the power of his spirit to trust in Christ. And it is only through Christ in receiving his spirit that we can combat and oppose the works of the flesh. And you may find yourself here this morning living in the greatest sense of despair, living in the reality of your sin that has brought forth the reality of your need of repentance. And in Christ, and in Christ alone, I want to point you to the greatest hope and invite you to respond to him this morning. You may be responding as a new believer for the first time. You may be responding as a rebellious son who has grown more and more fleshly over time. And through the preaching of the word of God and by opening up the scriptures, the word and his spirit are speaking to you, beckoning unto you to repent and believe the gospel. How vile is your sin? How wretched is your sin? How wretched is the works of the flesh? Yet how sweet and how glorious is our Savior. Beloved, I implore you this morning to respond to that end, to stop trusting in your flesh, to stop trusting in the works of your flesh. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In your flesh, you will be condemned. And things like these will be condemned. What is it for you? How about it for you? Will you respond to the Spirit's leading this morning, calling you to repentance and faith? I implore you this morning, respond to the good news of the gospel. That there's always a road home. No matter how far down that path you are, the road home is through Jesus. It's repentance and faith. And to that end, I pray that you would respond this morning. Well, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. If you'd like more information about Prospect Baptist Church, you can visit our website at prospectbaptistchurch.org, or you can find us on Facebook by searching Prospect Baptist Church, Fayetteville, Tennessee. 
If you live in the Fayetteville area, we would love for you to join us in worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. If you're not comfortable doing that at this time, we understand, but please know we are live streaming our services on Facebook Live. We do hope to see you soon and look forward to you worshiping with us. Until next time on the Prospect Sermons Podcast.